Hi, everybody, and welcome to Mecha Dragon, a podcast about all the geeky and nerdy stuff you love. Brought to you by Captain Geek and the Dark Nerd. I'm your Captain Will. And I'm your nerd, Jess. Today, we are talking about the 2014 movie, The Babadook. And we are very privileged to have with us to discuss this very interesting horror movie, Mike Gagney, a returning guest who is the producer of the Boston Harbor Horror Podcast, uh, which was recently nominated for an award. Was it not, Mike? Yes, it was uh, It was nominated for three Audioverse Awards for writing in an audio drama, playing a main character for myself, and then playing a main character for Karen Heimdall from Y2K. She plays uh, Valentina Morales, which is the uh, one of the protagonists. That's fantastic, Mike. And if you've, you know, if you've heard the podcast, you would understand why it got these nominations. And uh, so we encourage everybody to check it out. And I understand that you're uh, almost done with season two and you're now writing season three as well. Correct. Correct. Uh, Episode 11 just dropped on the first and episode 12 will be out on the 15th of October. Great. Great. Uh, At the end, we'll uh, give you a chance to uh, shout out what your links are and stuff. But welcome to the show. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. It's good to be back. Yeah, and so we also have joining us once again our steadfast, the magnificent, the magnificent horror aficionado Megan Salinas. Welcome back, Megan. Good evening, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Bringing your A game once again. Sorry, we uh, I did a podcast talking about Dracula yesterday, so I'm still in that like woo. Oh, okay, right on, right on. <laughs> was that one of your Rooster Teeth shows that you did? Uh, no, I was invited onto a different podcast to talk about uh, the 1992 Bram Stoker's Dracula film. Oh, oh that movie with Gary Oldman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love that <laughs> film. Love it. Oh, all right. It, it is a it is it is an insane movie, but it is oh so fun. Oh, so fun. Oh, God. And I just love Gary Oldman, too, I got to say. Uh, and wait, and Keanu Reeves, right? Am yeah. Right? And this correctly? <laughs> With a British accent, no less. Carrie Elways is in it. Uh, Bill Campbell's in it. Anthony Hopkins is in it. Uh, yeah. Lot, oh, man. A lot I'm of people are in that movie. That now. <laughs> I haven't even thought about that. It's a time. classic, man. It is a classic, seriously. Okay, well, we've got our crew together, and we're here to talk about the Babadook. So as is Woo! our habit... Let's just start with a very brief sort of non-spoilery, you know, review and discussion of general impressions of this movie so that, you know, if anybody hasn't seen it, we're giving you an idea of what you might expect and, you know, give you an idea of if you want to go see it or not. So so basically, let's uh, Megan, if we could start with you, you know, let us know what your general impressions of of the film are. What did you think about this movie? I really appreciate this film. Like the the first time I watched it, I was on the edge of my seat for for quite a bit of it. I I think this was kind of on the the precipice because 2014, I think this is when a lot of independent horror movies were beginning to sort of change the landscape a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, and, and we're still sort of seeing what the, the horror landscape has evolved into because of independent movies like this. Mm-hmm. And that is honestly the biggest compliment I can give this movie is that it is a breath of fresh air. As, as much as I love mainstream studio horror films like the the conjuring series and like i think at the time like insidious was 
like it was before that movie's franchise's third chapter and everything like that. As much as I love those big franchise films that really pull in the books, like between we were feeling a lot of franchise fatigue in the early 2010s. And so a movie mm. like this felt like a huge breath of fresh air. It is a labor of, of love from the first time director, Jennifer Kent. Mm-hmm. And I can understand why certain people wouldn't really be scared by this or would be annoyed by certain aspects of the film um, because it's an unapologetic look at how hard being a parent can be. Um, But that being said, the emotional journey it takes me on is quite a roller coaster ride. um, And I feel for the main character. Uh, I love the monster. And all in all, I admire any movie that can get under my skin a little bit because mm-hmm. I, I don't really get scared these days. But there were there were a couple segments from this film where I was on the edge of my seat. And even at the end, like for my first time watching it, even if I didn't like have trouble going to sleep that night, I, I have to look at a film and go, bravo, movie. You, you <laughs> almost got me. <laughs> <laughs> almost got you. Yeah. Interesting. I think, you know, to your point. One of the things that horror movies have to be really good at is kind of exploiting the full range of human emotion. And that's why I think you see a lot of uh, directors come out of directing horror movies and like that's where they started. But they'll end up doing any type of movie under the sun for like the studios after that. Like James Wan ended up doing what the the Fast and Furious franchise. And Aquaman. You know, you have Scott Derrickson who ended up doing like Doctor Strange. Because I think you you just you have to be able to use every trick in the book cinematically to really evoke all of these emotions because that's what people expect from horror movies. So yeah. That's kind of what I think about that. Jess, give us your general impressions of oh, Okay. Uh, I watched this movie twice, and it was uh, it was a journey for sure. Um, <laughs> the first time I watched it, first time I watched it, I was like, oh, Baba Dookie, not so spooky. And like the best part about the movie was the Australian accent. Can, can I ask, how long were you workshopping Baba Dookie? Uh, it just popped into my head. Actually, when I when I was writing down the notes when I watched it, I actually wrote Baba Dookie at the top. And because uh, the first time I saw this movie, I I guess I just wasn't in the right mindset to get into it. I didn't really understand it, so I hated it. Plus, the first half of the film, the child in this movie, uh, played by. Noah, I didn't write his name down, but uh, the little child actor, you know how in all these movies they always Noah have Noah Wiseman. Noah Wiseman. Yeah, they always have to have the creepy little kid. Well, they took the creepiness and pulled some of that out and inserted a turkey baster full of just annoying insanity. <laughs> I could not stand the kid. And in the second half of the movie, as their uh, uh, relationship between him and his mother kind of evolves to a darker area. That's when I started, like, clapping. I was like, oh, boy, he's finally going to get what I want to do to him. Done to him. <laughs> um, I didn't care for the kid. He did do, upon, you know, the second watch through and stuff, he did do a fantastic performance uh, for his age. But just that kind of turned me off the first time. 
But watching it through a second time, I had a much different journey and I understood it more and I could uh, uh, understand and connect to it better. And we can get into that when we get into the spoilers. But gotcha. Yeah, so he so hated it. Saying that the movie was kind of hard for you based on how the, the, the kid was act the, the, oh, the character was, of the kid was, was acting up. Basically. Horrible. How do you think his mom felt? Oh, I know. That's, <laughs> yeah, right. I felt sorry for her. You know, you feel real bad. It's like, oh, I know people with kids like this. And ugh. <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. Um, so, Mike, what are your general impressions of this movie? So, like Jess, I've watched it twice. I watched it the first time a while ago. Um, I don't get to watch horror movies all that often because if they don't fit in a very specific subset, I can't watch them with my wife. So I have to wait till I'm like standing duty or whatever. So I have like the, a night where it's just myself and I can sit there at my laptop. So I watched it the first time and I really appreciated like what Meg was saying about the independent aspect of it. You know, it would, it seemed like it had a little bit more of an original, um, foundation than a lot of other horror movies have come out with where all of a sudden it's, 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 there's just, it just starts happening. It's not, there's not like the, uh, the, the typical tropes of a uh, haunted house or this, that, or the other thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of the issues that I had with it were, I, I felt like there was a, there might've been things that were either cut or could have required a little bit more exposition. And again, I'll, you know, we'll go into the spoiler aspect of it later. Cause that's stuff that I started to kind of analyze when I watched it again yesterday. I thought it was a. Pre- it was, I thought it was well done. I thought the acting was really well done. Um, the visuals, I would say, were better than I expected for an independent film. But some of the elements of the monster itself, I think, were a little like, "Come on, really? Yeah. That's that's what you went with." <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think part of that came out of the fact that it was a very low budget movie. I think it had a mm. a, a budget of about two million dollars, uh, which, if you think about it, is really low. Oh God, yeah. And uh, the director, I guess, was uh, very insistent that they were going to have sort of a uh, a lo-fi and handmade approach to the monster. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, she she didn't want to use CGI, basically. And uh, I guess there was some stop motion uh, used for it. Oh, yeah. And um, yeah, yeah. And I guess uh, Kent, in some of my reading, I learned she cited the influence of uh, Millier, which uh, at some point in the movie, she's actually watching his old films on TV. Uh, The Fall of the House of Usher and uh, a movie called Haxan, which I don't think I've ever seen. But uh, I just thought was interesting. So, Mike, you know, based on your most recent watch of this and, you know, everything you're thinking about, how many Babadooks out of 10 would you give this movie? I would probably give it a solid seven and a half to eight just because of originality and there wasn't as much of a formulaic approach as a lot of other of your stock horror movies take. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that, you know, granted this is something of a thing for me when it comes to horror in general, um, but like this slow descent into madness that uh, the mother goes through. I think was captured really, really well, especially coming from, you know, a little background on me is, you know, I have, I have a couple of kids and one of them, I mean, he's, they're 19 now, but you know, there's a lot of severe psych issues that I've dealt with, especially when it comes to my kids over the years. So having that perspective, as opposed to like your average 20 something moviegoer perspective is going to be different. 
Right. Uh, but I think they did a good job capturing where, like, you get to a certain point as a parent, especially if you're not getting any support, where you're literally losing your mind. I can really get behind that element. Yeah, yeah. I definitely really felt for the the mother in this mm. movie, uh, who's basically the main character, Amelia. And it, it really does showcase the trials and tribulations of parenting in a way that I did not appreciate the first time that I watched this movie, which was about a year and a half before my uh, son was born, uh, my first child. And so I did find that watching it again with kind of that in hindsight, I thought, oh, my God, I, I, I thought I understand it so much better. I felt like I got more out of the movie in a way. Yeah. I, like, I'm not saying that people without kids can't get something out of the movie. I just felt like being a parent now, I was kind of privy to like a further dimension of it maybe or Mm -hmm. not necessarily that I didn't notice it at all before but that I felt um maybe more connected to it maybe as a a way to put it yeah um yeah and um I, I think that one of the things that the movie does extremely well is it charts this sort of you know the character arcs of of these two characters the mother and and her son extremely extraordinarily well i mean there's no point at which i felt they skipped over some psychological step you know for the sake of like you know the convenience of plot or something like that it was very cohesive and um you empathize with the mother when the kid is acting up so much (laughs) yeah you know so much and like um there's there's a period at the beginning of the movie where she's basically tired and, uh, you know, without getting into it any further than that, like I, I really understood that so much better this time <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> in a way. And I, I think that the, the movie also is very rich in its thematic material, which we'll get into in the spoiler section, you know, but so for me and, and the, you know, frankly, the performances were like re- amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I'm constantly amazed when you see a kid that age and he must have been what, like 10, nine or 10 something. Um, or no, no, no. I think he's supposed to be seven in the movie. Six. Yeah. Six. OK, six. Yeah. I'm going to say that is a tiny 10 year old. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. But I just thought, you know, anytime I see a kid give a performance that uh, that good in a movie, I'm just like amazed at what, you know, everybody is able to accomplish in like. Yeah, I just thought the acting was was pretty amazing and and I thought that the the way the whole story was constructed was just very well thought out. Mm-hmm. Like I'm trying not to give any spoilers here yet, but I just thought that everything sort of fit together and there are certain certain elements of like the backstory that you don't you can't really put all the pieces together until at least halfway through the movie. Yeah. And I think when those things finally come together, it's kind of like it just drapes a whole new layer of emotion onto everything. And I really appreciate how that was used to kind of draw draw you in and, you know, lend some more weight to the to the story. So for me, I think I would actually give this uh, a, an eight out of ten uh, would be my rating. Jess, what what's your how many Babadooks out of ten would you give the Babadook? Um, originally, if I was just going off my first viewing, which I I, like I said, I wasn't in it. I wasn't connected to it. It didn't resonate with me. I just hated that kid so much. It threw me off balance. I would have given it like a five. But after watching it again and understanding all the thematic elements and how they built the story, and uh, like Mike said, it does chronicle that slow descent into madness. That was done very, very well. I'm going to go ahead and give it a seven. 
now. Okay. Okay. Fair Which enough. Which is still good. I still have like a like Mike mentioned. It's not I a five for the monster. Not a five. And we know what kind of movies you give a five to. Oh yeah. Um. So that we all give fives to. Anyways, Megan, <laughs> uh, how many Babadooks out of ten would you give the Babadook? I give it eight Duk Duk Dooks out of ten. Um, <laughs> but it's a very high eight. Uh, and like. I just love so much about this movie. Uh, I like the thematic elements. I like the emotional journey it takes me on. It is a bit of a slow burn in the first mm-hmm. half. But unlike other movies we've talked about, there's an actual <laughs> payoff for yeah. that slow burn in the second yeah. half. Um, and I know, Jess, you were saying you didn't really care for the look or design of the monster, but I have a real soft spot in my heart for monsters that just, like, don an oversized coat and a hat, and they're like, look, I'm a respectable member of society. I'm in disguise. <laughs> yeah. got that top aren't, hat, yeah. Aren't yeah. I adorable? Yeah, the, the Babadook was created as if it was, it looked like a, some child's drawing or something. Which is also something I really like about um, just in horror stories where it's done well, I like that twisted fairy tale aspect of things because that's how the Babadook initially appears as a children's book with a creepy rhyme and beautifully twisted illustrations. The creepy rhyme goes a long way to establishing an eerie atmosphere for me. Oh, (laughs) Oh, God, yeah. I have a friend who they did a limited edition um, uh, release of the actual book, The Babadook, and like the little storybook. They did a limited release of that. I have a friend who got it. And by the time I had heard that this was a thing, obviously it was long after the thing Mm. was gone. But she let me hold it and look at it. It was just (laughs) absolutely beautiful. And I'm super jealous. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's but, cool i didn't know they had that limited edition thing but yeah the the other thing i appreciate about this movie is i like when i first watched it in 2014 not to get like too real or anything about that but it was a different experience watching it in 2014 than it was um any subsequent time i've rewatched this film particularly on my most recent rewatch for this podcast Um, because when i initially watched it in 2014 i was actually sitting next to the person i was dating at the time who unbeknownst to me was going through a severe depression and So the themes of depression and denying that there's anything wrong, this denial like, no, no, everything's fine, everything's fine, it hits me in a way that it didn't hit me when I first watched it and kind of tied into that too. Not that I hadn't experienced grief back in 2014, but, you know, in the six years that have passed, you know, you lose people in your life. And so you look at grief differently and portrayals of grief differently and they hit you differently. Yeah. So there are things in this movie where even though the first time I watched it, like I felt bad for the characters and I'm like, whoo, man, what a roller coaster ride that was. Uh, watching it again, I was no joke. <laughs> there were certain points sitting on my couch this time around where I was just bawling. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the kid, the kid does drive you kind of over the edge like that. I was in tears too. Just, just yeah. for, stop. for completely different stop. reasons that had nothing to do with empathy. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I'm very empathic about myself. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm like, oh God, my ears. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, um, I think this can wrap up our non-spoilery portion of uh, of the the podcast. Although I, I think maybe just one more thing about it. Now, uh, I think Megan maybe was the only one, or Mike was the only one who addressed the monster uh, directly, the Babadook. And I I just want to say on this last non-spoilery note that like. What I liked about the monster, aside from uh, his very like, dapper hat, his, his very, very dapper, dapper coat. Hat. Yeah. Um, oh, by the way, did you guys see that at like sometime after this movie came out, suddenly there was this online meme about the Babadook where because he was like in this dapper like outfit and top hat, he was like he was like became a symbol for like gayness or something. Uh, what what happened was uh, it was a Netflix goof and they oh. put the Babadook in their LGBTQ recommended <laughs> okay. um, section. That's what it was. On, 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 you know, on their, their selection, you know, for different genres. And so everybody online just absolutely adored that. And so for a little bit, the Babadook sort of ironically became a, a gay icon. Right. right. Um, but what I loved is that, like, back in 2017, when it came out, uh, a lot of, because the, the Babadook being a gay icon, Icon had become a meme. A lot of people were shipping Pennywise with the Babadook. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I'm not even going to lie. Oh. A lot of the fan art was really cute. You can't make this stuff up. You can't make it up. And actually, uh, for some limited amount of time, they had like a LGBTQ like version of the, the Blu-ray and DVD set of the Babadook with like a rainbow in the background or something. <laughs> but anyways, I just thought that was uh, Baba interesting. Baba says love is love, guys. And I think really <laughs> that's the lesson we can take away. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, that's, that, that just occurred to me real quick. But I, what I really liked about the monster was I think that it was used very effectively in the amount that it's uh, suggested versus the amount that it's seen. Yeah. You know, the, the the two big examples that come to mind are like Alien and Jaws, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, uh, that's the only way I can think of to even compare this movie to those two movies. But I just kind of, without saying, you know, any any real spoilers, I think that was an effective use of the monster in that way for me. Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree. He's not on screen for very often, but when he is, he makes his presence known. And I, yeah. uh, another thing I really like about this movie, the jump scares. Like, uh, horror movie jump scares um, can be really annoying or, like, really like, ah, oh, come on, guys. What I like about the jump scares in this movie is that they are unaccompanied by sound effects most of the time. Mm. Um, or oh, when yeah. they are, it's very minimal sound effects. And so there's so many horror movies that try to scare you with, like, boom, here's this loud noise. And, right. oh, aren't you afraid now? It's like, no, I'm just reacting. <laughs> I'm, right. not, I'm not afraid. But when... This movie does a jump scare and like cuts to something, but without that big accompanying like bomb noise. It's just every time the kid opens his mouth is what it is. No, I was waiting for that one. I'm just sitting here going like, "Holy crap!" Like, and and you're right there in the the mindset of the main character of like, "Is that thing that I saw really what I thought I saw? Am I going crazy?" You know? Yeah, it's really good. They're very understated and therefore very effective. I agree. I. I guess I should just I should clarify then a little bit my issue my the only issue I had with with the monster itself was that I think there was one scene 
where it actually showed the face a little bit in outside the book. Mm-hmm. And just the way that the face was was just You're like, was, that's a silly makeup job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You so you know exactly what I'm talking about, Meg. Mm-hmm. That that was that one scene and I was like, Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I hear you guys on that. Um, so, all right. So we will now move into clear spoiler territory. If you don't want spoilers for this movie, press pause, go watch it, and come back and listen to the rest. Hide okay. your kids, hide your wife, get under the bed. Watch spoilers, out. Spoilers, 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 spoilers. Okay. Let's get into it, guys. So I'm going to I'm gonna start with uh, this question. I, I think we've really already answered whether we like or dislike the film. Big thumbs up for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Same. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and a slightly lower thumbs up from Jess. Mm-hmm. So what what would you say really w- it was that excited, fascinated, terrified, or otherwise engaged you about the film? Like, or or you know, what were some things that especially turned you off about it? And uh, can we just start with Mike on this one? Sure. Um, I mean, it's it's more just a backup on the on the psychological element. Just because, like, I've I've gotten more as I've gotten older and I've experienced more, I've gotten more enjoyment out of watching the various elements of mental illness, um, and and seeing that descent into madness. I'm, I mean, I'm a huge weird fiction and cosmic horror guy, and that's usually a big element with that. So, watching which just seems like just normal. Well, I wouldn't say normal everyday stress because that kid was not normal everyday stress. Um, no. But of being a single parent and dealing with that without any backup. And you could see the other thing that I, th- I think they portrayed well, even though one of my issues is that, and this is where I mentioned exposition earlier, is that they don't really give you so much why. It just seems like for some strange reason, this woman who's literally pulling her hair out because her kid's <laughs> off the rails, mm-hmm. but she has jack shit for a support network. Like, oh, yeah, her sister is terrible. You know, the school like the, the, the school. Oh, my God. As a parent of a special of special needs kids. Holy crap. I wanted to it was reach awful. through the screen and just strangle those two school administrators and just clock them together. <laughs> um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess I guess I empathize with that a little bit because I have dealt with those school administrators that are, you know, you're dealing with a problem kid and they're just and their solution is just to like. Isolate them, make them see, put them in a in a shittier situation that they're Punishment, already in. Punishment, basically, yeah. essentially, yeah. You know, crowd control versus hey, let's help this kid succeed. It's like right. no, we're just gonna we're well, just gonna do just this, so we don't have to, to deal help with them. The boy, yeah, the boy, yeah, the boy. Yep, yep. Stop calling him the boy. Yep. I haven't seen yeah. that movie either. <laughs> <laughs> I was <laughs> I was so struck in this movie how. Really like her whole social support network, all the people she knows, and society at large is not there to help her. Was was supremely unhelpful at yeah. at, at at best, right? And it and at worst was sort of actively making her life more difficult. Like, okay, there's her sister, who is totally useless. I think was the word that you used. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you didn't use it, I'm using it now. Um, <laughs> and, I mean, she she just seemed, you know, her sister and in that, you know, scene where she's like chatting with her friends, they're so judgy. And then like there's that moment where she, uh, the mother, uh, I, I keep saying the mother, her name is Amelia. Yep. She just can't take it anymore. And she's like, 
I can't remember, you know, verbatim what she says, but she's like, wow, it's so awful that you had to deal with, like, not being able to shop that day. Wow. Whatever, yeah. whatever it was. Time to go to the gym. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah. Right. How right. Do you deal with you that? must have so much to talk about with those poor, under like, underprivileged mm-hmm. people. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I, all those like, girls were all, like, old prom queens, you know? Yeah, that, it's, it seemed like that. Attitude. It was like the mean girls showed up in this horror movie just to be mean girls for what 15 <laughs> seconds of screen time yeah and it's like she goes to the the police station they they disbelieve her right um they're not willing to help they're like you know they're just so dismissive you know yeah and uh the, what you described at the school was just was just awful you know uh, it just seemed like at every turn there was nobody help her and like finally you know she got those sedatives from the doctor, but only because she basically had a breakdown in front of the, of the doctor. Yeah. And man, he didn't even want to give her anything. He didn't. Mm. But then of course, soon after that, you know, the social workers show up. (laughs) Yeah. And they're there to basically be like, all right, get your act together or we're going to take your kid away. The only person she really did have that was any support at all was her elderly uh, neighbor lady. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. She was, what was her name? Dorothy. Grace. 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 Uh, thank you. I, I don't know where I got Dorothy. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I think, you know, for me, it was like the whole psychological journey that not only Amelia, but that her son goes on too, and that they go through together and their relationship was like really compelling to me this time. And when you and when you put the, the creepy, you know, Babadook monster on top of it and basically is kind of... Um, you know, following them along on this journey and terrorizing uh, them, really terrorizing them both. But at first, you just think the kid is just off the rails yeah, and, you know, having an imaginary friend or whatever. Or at least, you know, that's what, you know, the mother and everybody else thinks. But uh, I, that was really – and as I said before, like, I just really like how it was a slow burn and it wasn't cheesy jump scares and I just felt like they built the suspense uh, really, really well. And they didn't, like, show you the monster too much to the point where it lost its its power. I think that's, you know, that's what was really effective for me. Um, Jess, yeah. what do you think? Like I said, I didn't catch on to any of that stuff the first time through. Uh, but the second time, I, you know, I really was in a better state of mind and was able to really see how well put together the story was and how you know it accurately portrayed you know her dealing on her own basically with all of this stuff and you can just see you know like pieces of the puzzle of her sanity just (laughs) falling out she was falling apart and it's like you know the very first scene is like uh you just see like her face and that's when the car crash happened which ended up killing her husband as she was uh, being taken to the hospital, pregnant with Samuel, uh, right? Which you find out later. That's that's the thing I was mentioning before. With like when you when you find out that it like puts the whole conflict with the birthday party into context, you know, with her yeah. sister right. and like all that. Now, you know that that's when some of that stuff starts to really hit home. And you know, the very next scene is the introduction of Samuel, and it was right then I I, I, I hated him. Right then. <laughs> Boom. Very first scene. And also, I don't know if you guys notice, he looks kind of like Alex from Clockwork Orange. You know, <laughs> yeah, I didn't even like think of that, that until you just said it. <laughs> but uh, 
But no, it was a lot better around, better the second time around. And it was, like I mentioned, really well put together. And even like the color scheme in the film was all just muted gray colors. It's like she has one room in her house that the walls are kind of a dark, darkish teal blue. But aside from that, I mean, there's no bright colors. Um, even the sunlight and stuff coming through and all the lights in the house, they don't have any type of warmth to them. They're like mm-hmm. the blue and white lights. You don't get any of that yellow heat from the sun or anything. So it is a very grim um, movie. As far I think as the that's color a great color. observation, and that's definitely something uh, that that the director, Kent, did uh, very much on purpose. Yeah. Um, they, She said that they wanted the interior of the house to be like really claustrophobic and very cool, which mm-hmm. to non-filmmakers mean more blue than orange, yeah. basically. And they did not use any gels on the camera lenses, uh, you know, colored, you know, mm-hmm. film across the ca- uh, the camera lens to change. And they didn't uh, mess with the color really during, uh, you know, post-production. And she said, the director, that she was really influenced in the look by, like, David Lynch and uh, Roman Polanski yeah. uh, films. And even, even like, the, the skin tone of everyone in the movie, even everyone's skin in this movie is all just kind of pale and... You know, mm-hmm. no, no rosy red cheeks, even with that kid screaming constantly at the top of his lungs. And I will say that this movie should get an award because it is just lots of screaming. It's tons <laughs> and tons. I mean, if you just put all those screams in the movie together from end to end, it's probably 15 minutes of the movie. Just one constant <laughs> wavering scream. And uh, that could be fun. Well, I, I, I guess you'll have to make a supercut for us. Um, yeah. Megan, what, what was it that really engaged you about this film uh, I mean, or guys, the opposite? You guys touched on a lot of it already. I, I really do like the, um, the way the story is constructed, even though the first half is a, a slow burn. Like, it all feels like it's building to something. Uh, I like the atmosphere that the cinematography creates. Uh, like you guys were saying, it's very gray, very dreary. I like the monster. <laughs> I've said that before already. Uh, I'm very, very fond of the Babadook. Um, and what I really like, too, is this like ongoing thematic presence of neglect or willfully choosing to ignore a problem leading Mm -hmm. to rotten decay Mm -hmm. like um amelia very early on is like constantly rubbing her cheek like she she clearly has some sort of cavity situation going on Mm -hmm. um it's a good thing she gets to the dentist later on (laughs) self-administered The dentist. But, <laughs> but yeah, she, she's she got this cavity in the back of her throat, which is most likely causing severe headaches in addition to her insomnia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The hole that she finds beneath the wallpaper behind her refrigerator that, you know, that may or may not have been there, but which, uh, you know, has the infestation of cockroaches. Like there's this rot and decay mm-hmm. that's hidden behind this um, seemingly pristine white wall. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's just stuff like that that all tie into that theme of not actually dealing with your problems because she's refused to properly deal with her grief and depression. It has slowly rotted away 
inside her to the point where it either manifested this monster or it attracted it, one or the other. Yeah, I think this movie is so rich thematically and in its symbolism. And uh, I, I want to talk about that a little bit later when we talk about the theme. But that, those are some really good observations. So let's talk Definitely. about the monster a bit. So, uh, Megan, I know you said you really enjoyed the Babadook monster. How do you rate, you know, what I might call the fright factor of the monster itself? And what is it you think that makes it scary or effective or not? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, on a scale of one to ten, how scary is he? Oh, sure, if you want to do that. Uh, I'm really not the best person to ask because I look at a monster. Like, a couple years ago, went to Halloween Horror Nights uh, back in 2012, which was the year um, Scream 4 came out. And so as as a result, Scream 4 was the uh, theme for the Terror Tram. So there were a bunch of people dressed up like Ghostface getting ready to jump out at you. And I turned to my roommate at the time and I said, can we keep one? Can we take him home? She was like, no. <laughs> So fright factor, I don't know, maybe a six or a seven, um, depending on what like still frame from the movie you're looking at. I like the design. I like his insectile appearance. Um, I like uh, a lot of the insect buzzing noises that exist. And I, mm. I like that this one sequence in particular where his hat drops down um, from uh, from the chimney, I think, and then his coat is also discarded as Amelia is crawling on the floor. That um, was scary. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. Like, that is like him removing the disguise, mm-hmm. um, so to speak. And I I really liked that um what the only literally the only thing i don't like about the babadook is a very very nitpicky like um there are one or two moments where the sound effects of him roaring i they it, because of this movie's small budget they must have been stock sound effects because i swear to god it is the sound of a cartoon pterodactyl from old <laughs> hanna barbera cartoons that i used to watch as a kid i think i know exactly what you're talking about it's like i've heard that before i've i've heard now that, that you noise. mention it <laughs> It's like, what's that one famous scream, like the Wolford scream? Like the Wilhelm scream. Wilhelm Wilhelm scream, yeah. Um, So they're, they're, like... Like, honestly, I was invested in this scene. I was on the edge of my seat. And then I hear that cartoon pterodactyl sound effect. And I'm like, wait a minute. So it's <laughs> it's the only. And honestly, if you didn't watch as much TV as I did when I was a kid, it's not something you would notice. So it's not yeah. necessarily a mark against the movie or the creature itself. But it's like the one thing that the Babadook does that takes me out of the situation. They were pretty low budget. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, okay, great. Um, Jess, what do you what do you think about the fright factor of the Babadook monster? What makes it scary or not? I like you mentioned earlier. It's like the story really evokes more of the creature than you see of the creature, and I preferred that feeling than the feelings I got from actually seeing it. You know, because really, all it does it just kind of shudders around and it doesn't. Do anything but raise its arms up. And then there's that one weird scene where that's where they use the stop motion, where the thing like, you know, splits up onto the ceiling, and then it drops down onto Amelia's face, and that's when you see its actual its face. 
And I'm like, oh, that's just that's just goofy. Anything and I, else I, like the bits where it rolls in and out of a room, though? Yeah. <laughs> I love that movie-making <laughs> yeah. trick. Yeah, and I like I like creatures that really spark the imagination. It's like, or they don't show all of it at once, and you're like, what's going on? You see little bits and pieces of it. This one, it is just a goofy. I mean, it's Edward Scissorhands in a in his dad's jacket and hat. <laughs> That's all it is. And it's, I didn't care. Like I said, I cared for the feelings and emotion from not seeing it than I did from seeing it. So I wouldn't say it was my uh, favorite type of uh, scary monster. Hmm. Yeah, I I think I basically agree with you in that. Uh, like I, I like how they didn't show it a whole lot and that I, I like the, the sort of suggestive way that they kind of filmed around it. Right. Basically shadows and you know, just kind of barely seeing it for a second and that kind of thing. And I did I did think it was really effective when it's like it plops off its hat and then it, you know, its coat drops to the ground. And I thought something about it was unmasking itself even more made it more frightening, you know, especially where it did kind of sort of suggest that it had sort of like insectile, you know, features to it at some point. Yeah, and, uh, I, I like uh, that that moment is, you know, foreshadowed in the book itself. Right. He's just a shadow with sharp teeth. Yeah. Um, with like, you know, its arms extending like their wings. Um, and I, I really liked how that, that moment that we're talking about where it possesses Amelia, like where you turn around and you see the wingspan, but you don't see the rest of it. And it's just mm-hmm. like, yeah, no, this is this is good. This is good. Yeah, like that this. was that was great stuff. The only thing that I couldn't that didn't quite make sense to me in that scene was I was like, if this is so awful, why is she just crawling on the floor? Like she wasn't injured. Yeah, that confused me too. Yeah, yeah. I guess she was, you know, psychologically uh, incapacitated. I, I like but... the scene where she's in the bed, and you know, it, it it comes, the door opens, and it starts walking into the room. She's Puts a cover up over her head. Like, you know, that I mean, scene I thought was one of the, the more effective ones in terms of like fright factor because you don't see it, but you hear it. You hear and it, it going, bah, it, bah. Yeah. That was yeah. a really good uh, sound design for the monster, I think. Mm-hmm. The Babadook sounds that it made. And, uh, you know, it it's like right above her on the bed. And it's, it's just this like sheet, you know, that she's holding up between her and it. I thought that was uh, really effective. But, Mike, what do you think about the monster and, you know, what makes it effective or scary or not? So I think I'll, I'll go with uh, what Megan said about how it was all the less you see, the better. That sort of mm-hmm. thing. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think that's that's what a lot of other horror movies fail to grasp is that they show they they show too soon, and once you show too soon, you immediately become desensitized to it. Yeah. Where this thing was, it was a lurking presence and a lurking menace throughout, and the use of the shadow. I think it was it was less the monster by itself and more how it was used in its environment. Mm-hmm. And on, like. Going back, and I decided to like try to refresh my memory, so I started looking through Google images of it, and then I go back to just the 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 book itself. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Edward Gorey, the artist, hmm. at all. Uh, no, he's, he's most well known for the Ghastly Crumb Tinies. Yeah, those are great. Uh, which is like A is for Amber who drowned in a pool, B is for Billy who was eaten by ghouls, and goes down the whole alphabet. Yeah, awesome. Um, it's got the same artwork as that. Yes, it's very it's very similar to his artwork. Um, and he's a mass he was a mass native, by the way, <laughs> from Massachusetts. 
but no, like the artwork from the book, I think, and the way they kind of use that to kind of what's the word I'm looking for, where the the physical representation in the real world kind of matched that a little bit aside from the face. When the one time you saw the mm-hmm. face, like I think the face in the book is creepier than the face that you see on film. I agree. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but I think it was definitely just the, the use of the environment is probably the best part about what makes it that, that creeping dread that's just, that's everywhere and nowhere all at the same time. And because of, uh, like Meg was saying, with the with like the the costume of just like the trench coat and the top hat, where it's easy to kind of, you know, like the scene in um, uh, the police station when she looks up and sees it on the wall, and then she kind of freaks out for a minute, and then oh, she just, that was so good. Yeah, you know, and then seeing the shadow in Grace's apartment while she's watching TV, right. Like, I, oh, yeah. And, and you know, that that woman is, you know, elderly and she's what does she have? Um, Hodgkin's Parkinson's. Or Parkinson's. Thank you. And so she's already this person who is so nice. She's like the only person who's nice to them, really. Yeah. And 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 but she's also kind of helpless. And when she sees the, the thing over there, that was really threatening. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's the best jump scare in the movie. <laughs> And that's the thing, too. It's like this creature can jump around and go to other houses and, you know, it can uh, fly around town, apparently, and chase her down when she's in her car. Oh, the car scene. Oh, oh, that that was harrowing. But if you just throw it downstairs in the basement and lock the door, we're good. I thought the car scene was was great. And, you know, the first time I saw it, I, I really thought maybe they would crash, you know. Um, yeah, into this tree, into that. Tree. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that was yeah, that was really fantastic because. Oh man, and yeah, that's where she uh, becomes a criminal. You know, <laughs> literally, does a hit and run. Yeah, just drives away without saying a word. Oh right, that's right. But again, that was also another example of like she is falling further into you know th- this awful place psychologically. And nobody's there to help. Like, yeah, you can understand, you know, the guy's mad because, like, you know, she just uh, had a fender bender with him. But at the same time, you know, he gets out of the car and he sees the kid and he's not like, is everybody OK? Let's, you know, do our insurance. It was immediately like just you like yelling at her. That. Yeah. Yeah. And physically like threatening her and, you know, in a way, or at least, you know, she could certainly perceive that. What I really like about the. That, that like plot points like that and her talking to her sister and things like that as is that like in her mind refusing to acknowledge something is the mm. same thing as um removing the problem right. from this scenario right. like um she just yeah. drives away she's nothing to she, see here buckle up she <laughs> drives away <laughs> from this from this actual crime um anytime when when the her son starts you know talking about seeing the Babadook, she tells him you know don't talk about this in front of your auntie Claire like I don't want you to embarrass me um, don't talk about this and right. then when her sister uh, at at um, her niece's birthday party is saying hey you need to just like get over this it's been seven years she's like i i have gotten over it i don't mention him i never bring it up like that's the same thing as moving on right right (laughs) right yeah yet her sister still sees that eating her alive yeah (laughs) yes that's it move along while while doing nothing to support her and actually dealing with those emotions and uh that's the thing too that's 
one of the themes that they you really see roll out throughout the film. You see the different ways she's acting where she obviously hasn't gotten over the death of her husband mm-hmm. and she's just blocking everything in. But I think that might be uh, better talked about. That's that's as good question. a segue of any as uh, to our next question, Jess, yeah. which is what what do you think the story has to say about parenting and about about grief? No good. <laughs> uh, zero out of five stars. Do not recommend yeah. either one. <laughs> yeah, like I was saying, it's like this child's life began uh, with the death of its father. And if he's six or seven, yes, I think she said seven years now. Um, she still hasn't dealt with it. And she's keeping everything inside. And you see how she like um, lashes out anytime. Um, they mention mention his name. I think it was Oliver, Oscar, Oscar. Uh, yeah, anytime he's mentioned, she just you know snaps back into that defensive mode, and she hasn't really been able to come to terms with her own feelings about everything or anything. And you can really see that's how she deals with her relationship with her son because he's troubled mm-hmm. not because he was born that way, but mostly because he's had his entire life of dealing with this incomplete person who was, you know, and the mother. lack of a father. On yeah. The, and the lack yeah. of a father, he doesn't have a father figure and he's just a product of his environment. But the way the movie starts, it's like this little bastard. Don't make <laughs> yeah, me turn this movie around, line. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like that. I love it when he's up on the, uh, they're at the park and she's talking to her sister and the kid climbs up on top of the swing set like, how do you even do that, first First of all? But then he's just standing there, and then the next scene is just him screaming his head off in the back of the car, as only he can do, you know, after he <laughs> fell and hurt himself. And you can just see she's just, like, gritting her teeth and trying to drive straight. And she's terrible about parenting. You know, she's got a terrible approach to it. And you learn that throughout the movie... Um, as it unfolds, that she's why the kid's that way when originally he's kind of the antagonist, but yeah. tables have turned. It, it it is interesting that the you know the perceived antagonist kind of shifts from the kid at the very beginning to the monster itself, which I think is really part of the major character arc that she goes through, and and we can talk about that in more detail in a minute. But um, Mike, what do you think this uh, story has to say about parenting and grief? Whew. Okay. Well, small topic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just <laughs> tiny, tiny, merely a footnote in the annals of history. 5,000 um, words or less. And see, my, my issue is, is I, I'm ultra pragmatic and I'm a fixer. So like the things that go through my head is like, okay, it's been, why is this kid not like seeing a therapist? And like, and I, and I had to try to reel myself in like, well, it is, am I speaking from? Am I thinking this from a privileged perspective? Because I haven't had an, I haven't had issues. Well, I've had issues with insurance being in the military, but like, it, this is Australia versus America. Like, is mental health just not like a thing out there? Like, maybe there's a cultural disconnect that I'm not catching because I don't know how you know social services and whatnot works in Australia. Because if if you base it, if you're looking at the, like the Australian system. Based off of that movie, whoa, fuck that. Um, <laughs> I can I can empathize with the mom a lot because I've I've dealt with a problematic kid that's in in, in Jess. I've literally dealt with a child that screams like that <laughs> and is disobedient to that degree, 
And the fact that she didn't kill him at all throughout the yeah. whole <laughs> runtime of that movie yeah. is a credit to her. demonic possession before she made an attempt on that boy's life. Exactly. Yeah. Guys, you're not was, incarcerated here. Kudos. Was, that was incredible. And bravo to her for that. Um, <laughs> but I think it's it if it provided a little bit more background as to why certain things or what was causing her to not deal with that. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. after so much time, somebody's eventually, I, you know, having a sister say, why don't you just get over it? Right. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. Ugh. Anybody <laughs> tells me to get over the death of anybody that was important to me, much less my spouse. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, she's lucky she didn't get clocked. You know what I mean? Um, I think that would have done a better job of setting up and probably empathizing with the mom a little bit more because th- what I had a hard time empathizing with her with is why hasn't she done anything? Like, this kid's gotten out of control in that first half of the yeah. film. And, and why she- is he not sleeping in his own bed every night? I, th- I think that's where the, <laughs> mm. like, the, the grief and the trauma come in. And so, you know, I, I actually was having very similar thoughts as you in terms of like, is this the way it is in Australia specifically yeah. or like, but I was really looking at it more through the lens of like her psychology in terms of, uh, you know, to uh, some points that Megan made, like she's just kind of like sweeping things under the carpet, suppressing you know all of these uh, all of these things and kind of is avoidance really dealing with it no it's not but that's kind of a result of like this like you know life-shattering grief that she's dealing with on top of the fact that like you know it is really tough to to take care of a baby with your spouse you know but now if you're doing it uh, as a widow <laughs> yeah with the crushing you know, depression and everything else by yourself it crushing depression you know and you know it's like it's it complicates the emotion so much i think that in her mind somewhere there's a connection between the child being born and her husband dying right because it all happened like on the same day yeah and she says that one sentence she's like you have no idea how many times i wished it was you that had died oh yeah that's right and so i think that it, it takes a really like I think this was I was doing some reading on, you know, on the movie and the director's like, you know, uh, intentions. And she really wanted to take a unblinking look at, you know, the darkness within us, I think, was what she uh, the way she put it. And, and, you know, in this case, a lot of that is like the grief and the trauma from this event uh, seven years ago. Right. Uh And uh, for a little bit of trivia, just real quick, um, how we mentioned earlier, how it was mislabeled as a LGBTQ uh, community movie or whatever, yeah. um, and you asked about this, you know, is that what it's really like in Australia? The truth of the matter is this is actually exactly what life is like in Australia, and this is actually a documentary. See, they actually <laughs> labeled it wrong <laughs> twice. <laughs> so, wow, the more you know, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, Sleep Megan, what do, you, what do you think this movie has to say about parenting and grief? Parenting is hard. <laughs> um, one of the one of the cool things about this movie is that it doesn't 
it doesn't sugarcoat. Um, there are so many movies, particularly where um, women are like the main characters or things like that, where they very much idealize motherhood, where it shows being mm-hmm. parent. Parenthood uh, is, is this idyllic thing. And even if you're a single parent, like, oh, your kids are a constant source of joy. And, um, you know, that that sort of thing. They, they very much sugarcoat mm-hmm. it. And this movie doesn't do that it's it's very honest it's like if you have a a kid that is hard to deal with and you don't have a support system it is it is hard it is ultimately worth it but it is hard the way my cousin put it to me because he he has kids that are older than mine and when i was just having my first he said to me uh he said Having kids is the most gratifying pain in the ass in the world. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, okay, interesting. And I think he was on to something with that statement. Yeah. But, you know, especially like in the first third to half of the movie, I think more the third when she's like super insomnia, the kid just won't go to sleep. Like everything's just piling on top of everything. She can't She's even got masturbate in, ple- in peace. That's right. Yeah. Oh, right. Oh, and which... that leads to one of the biggest jump scares too. <laughs> you, know, you, you see what's happening. You know, she's in her thing, you know, staring at the ceiling and you see the door slowly creeping open and that stupid kid's head. <laughs> well, here's in. the thing. And then you're I like, am... okay, here. What's that? Oh, here's the thing. I am 100% convinced that the Babadook did that on purpose. Right. Because, <laughs> because if she had First, gotten to gotta finish. First, we've got to get a Randy, see? <laughs> if she had gotten to finish, that would have been a little bit of stress relief. And right. she right. doesn't get that in the entire movie. Not no, of that, you know? You can't even have, like, five minutes. And, like, I, I just have to say that my second watch through of this, which was, you know, just a couple days ago, was I really... I really, really empathized with her uh, exhaustion, mm. you know, that she was going through because, you know, uh, you know, I have I have two kids and uh, and they're still fairly little. And like, you know, whether it's because they got a new tooth coming in or they're just in some phase or whatever it is, like there are times when I did not get a heck of a lot of sleep. And it's like you have to balance all these things. And uh, and I've always been an insomniac anyway. So I was just really, I was really feeling her pain in that, in that part of the movie. Yeah. And you can just see, she like sits there and just like stares at the wall with that like thousand mile gaze. It was, or, it was yeah. just a combination of like how it was written, how it was performed and how it was directed. And of course, you know, the director, uh, you know, is very responsible for like the performances that come out of the actors to a degree. And like, yeah. I just thought everybody did such an amazing job giving us this portrayal that felt so true to life. And I really appreciate the the unflinching, you know, eyes wide open way that the the movie addresses all of that. Yeah. And and talking about like certain types of neglect, too, even though she, you know, she's not a bad person and she's just at the end of her rope. But when she's acting neglectful towards her son, you know, like that that scene where she just wants to get some sleep and Sam comes over and he's like, you know, um, is there any food in the house? You know, all the food in the refrigerator mm. um, is gone because she had to take all the food out when she was trying to clean up that cockroach infestation that may or may not have been there. Right. Um, and she yells at him and he runs into his room and just cowers. And 
like she she goes back to sleep for a, like a few seconds before immediately feeling that regret and remorse. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's a very authentic moment of like a parent saying something they shouldn't have said to their kid and then immediately trying to like, oh, I, I can undo mm-hmm. the bad thing by, by doing yeah. a good thing, right? She reached yeah. her limit. Yeah, that was one of my favorite scenes. And like I mentioned, I, I, I clapped. I was like, yes. And she said, if you're really that hungry, why don't you go and eat shit? Yes. And I connected so much. I don't know that. why you found that hilarious. Oh, I found it heartbreaking. I, I mean, uh, you know. It is heartbreaking. Coming but... from a parent's point of view, it's like, yes, yes. But she immediately goes like, hey, why don't we go to this restaurant and you can get whatever you want for breakfast, even ice cream. Like, yeah. it's. It's very, it's like I said, it's a very authentic moment. It's like when an abusive parent, if they hit their kid and then immediately hug them and go like, oh, no, no. Yeah. like, um, So it, it, it was the non-physically abusive version of that. Yeah, I think both poles of that sort of interaction between them, the where she like snaps and says eat shit, and then where she's immediately like, oh, crap, you know, it's it's okay. I'm sorry I didn't mean it. Let's, you know, let's let's get you whatever you want. I think the fact that you had both of those made it so much more realistic and believable to yeah. me. And that's the thing, too. It's like that was like the first time she really lashed out at him verbally. But you can only assume for the first seven years of that kid's life, she's been doing that exact same thing to him emotionally, you know, just lashing out and then, you know, making it better and lashing out and making it better. So he's back to the whole parenting thing and her not being able to deal with her grief. That's kind of made him who he is. Yeah. Well, well the next uh, oh, few question. Go ahead, Megan. Re- really quick, just um, talking about parenting, too. You guys mentioned that, like, you know, in a lot of ways, her her life sort of, like, the, the day her spouse died, like, it, her life was irrevocably changed, and she's lost a lot of who she was um, based on that grief and that trauma. There's also, like, little subtle ways in which being a parent, and in particular a single parent, has irrevocably changed her life. Uh, you know, the, you when you get this view of her husband's stuff in the basement, Oscar's stuff in the basement, he was a musician, he played the violin. He had numerous instruments down there, and there's lots of sheet music. Mm-hmm. He was a musician, and she was a writer. Like, it's not something that's, right. that's really in the forefront of the film, but yeah. it is something that is mentioned very, very offhandedly. And so it's like before her, she had to take care of her son completely on her own, she and her husband had creative careers. Right. And now she is in a very different type of situation trying to make ends meet. She doesn't get yeah. that creative outlet anymore. And now all she does is take care of other people and suppress her own needs. Yep. Right. right. Even her job, she works at like, a you know, an assisted living home or something where she just takes care of the the elderly and, you know, those with like Alzheimer's and dementia. Like all day, all she does is take care of people that, you know, demand all of this like emotional work from her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even even they're not really happy with her, too, because like the first scene that they show her at work, she's preparing lunch for one of the old ladies. She's like, oh, I got you a chicken salad sandwich or something she's like i don't want chicken salad you know it's like everything she does from every angle people are unhappy with her you know being part of 
their lives basically they don't yeah pre- she's very yeah. unliked by anything. almost everybody in the film except for her <laughs> kid and her neighbor yeah and, and when then that does... one guy the one guy that came by oh that's yeah. right. oh robbie co-worker. co-worker that's right and then and there was no explanation for his disappearance it's just the next scene he just wasn't there anymore right. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah what's with these cuts man romance wasn't the focus although i i'd like to think that you know at the end of the movie, when things are a little bit back on track for her, I'd like to think that eventually they go on out on a date, but that's not the point. You can't, right. yeah. you can't love other people when you don't give yourself, you know, when you don't love yourself. And that's uh, talk, talk not to not to harp because I know we got to move on. But as far as like what this movie has to say about grief, I think it's kind of summed up in the the scene where Samuel has Amelia tied up and he's like, I know you don't love me. The Babadook won't let you, but I love you. And that's the moment oh, where I was right. sitting on the couch and I started to weep. That um, was because yeah. because again. Having watched this movie initially with somebody who was suffering from depression, but didn't end up like, but couldn't admit it. And the, like, ultimately that relationship didn't work out. Lines like, I know you don't love me because the Babadook won't let you hit me mm. particularly hard. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, again, go that's, ahead. That's like I mentioned earlier, how their relationship between Amelia and Samuel kind of changed halfway through the movie. And then it almost felt like I was watching, you know, home alone Four: exorcist um, because, you know, she's possessed, she's possessed by the thing. And this kid's running around with all those little traps and stuff that he's made himself. Yeah. You know, there's the, She's going down the basement stairs, and there's a little trip wire there. She hits her head and falls. That's what the Home Alone remake needs to be. It needs (laughs) to be a horror movie. Yeah, they took Exorcist and uh, Home Alone and put them together to make the second half of this film. And I just wish the kid had the you know charisma of Macaulay Culkin, you know, back in the early '90s. That would have been totally different. Yeah. Well, uh, okay. So my next few questions are kind of related. (laughs) So we'll just kind of see uh, how we get through them, but. let me start with Mike. Um, like, what do you think the Babadook monster represents or symbolizes? And and do, and can you give an example? Well, it it took a little bit of like thought and and like rereading because I don't my an issue I have is that when I'm watching a movie, I just get so absorbed into it that I don't I have a hard time, you know, trying to look for all the crazy metaphors and stuff like that. But I think the the overall concept of like grief and repression is probably the biggest part of it especially after having this conversation with everybody over this over this time period is she is repressed and projected her grief from the death of her husband and her son has become a stand-in and I don't want to say a punching bag because it seems like she bends over backwards for him at the same time as probably not doing all that great of a job so that being the case I think it it's it it she pushed it down and created this monster herself mm-hmm. and and i think it it kind of clicks at the very end when it's locked in the basement because what else what's on, what's in the basement it's literally all of her late husband's stuff and yeah and what it says um what it says uh, in the book too is once you let it in it 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 never you know, it never goes away. It Something comes like out that, again. Right? Yeah. It never comes out again. Yeah. So, and I do like the symbolism of it, like being in the basement 
Mm -hmm. And of course, when it is at its peak activity in the movie, it's actually like way upstairs with them. Yeah. Um, So I thought that was interesting. Megan, what do you think the Babadook symbolizes? And do you have an example? Yeah. I mean, that denial of uh, depression and grief, like, uh, you know, the the more you deny, the stronger I get. And um, I think ultimately what this movie has to say, whether or not um, the monster itself is simply a metaphor for grief and depression, you know, kind of irrelevant. The, the main message here is that grief never really goes away. It's not something you just get over. But right. like the main the main point, I guess, to this story is that even though it never goes away, you can manage it. And that's the whole I think that's the whole intent behind the ending of the film, if that makes yeah. any sense, um, is that you can properly deal with it and have a fulfilling life, even if you'll never be rid of it. Right. Yeah. Jess, what do you what do you think it represents? Um, Megan pretty much read my notes. I did. Uh, word for word. <laughs> I, I, I took a gander while you weren't looking and I'm like, I got to say it before Jess. Right. So I got to pull um, the rug out from under him. Yeah, but uh, no, it's it's basically, and I was just thinking about this just now as you were saying what you did, Megan, is uh, the Babadook is obviously a manifestation of her own grief. And mm. due to her inability to find closure, it's just manifesting. And like she mentioned the line, the more you deny, the stronger I become. That's really real. You know, if you've dealt with mm-hmm. that type of feeling, ignoring it doesn't make it better, you know. You have and to that, really that works for family dynamic situations too. Oh yeah, you know, it, oh, yeah. there's a problem. Yeah. You can't fix it. Yeah, and it's a really actually deep theme that they took on in this movie and portrayed it very well in using the vehicle of a child, you know, a children's nighttime storybook with a horror monster in it. But uh at the end it's like um, you really learn that the only thing that can kill, uh, what shall henceforth be known as the BBD, the only thing that can kill the BBD <laughs> is love. <laughs> and that's the oh, one thing I didn't really understand about love. the ending of the movie. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not even killed. It's just sort of kept in check. It's you know, so she right. finds a balance yeah. with it. Um, and I, I like that, like, power of love endings can come off real cheesy yeah, um, yeah. and, and kind of schmaltzy. Somehow this movie doesn't. Like, the yeah. this is a power of love ending, but, like, it, it definitely doesn't feel like... I don't feel cheated when we get to the end of this film. Definitely not. Um, and I basically agree with what everybody is saying here. I was thinking of it like, you know, grief and trauma, basically... And yeah, the more she represses it, the stronger it gets until it it does basically overwhelm her. But, you know, I noticed that when it's like, even though that's something that's inside her, you know, speaking metaphorically for a minute, when she does see it, she does recoil away from it, you know, so it's not her... It keeps I think that's part of what keeps her as like an empathetic character is that like she's not like embracing this darkness within her and like it doesn't turn into a movie where like she kills her son or anything like that. You know, she's trying to get away from it until she realizes that she basically has to confront it and uh, find this find this balance with it because, you know, they still are feeding it at the end, um, but uh, keeping it in the basement. So um, digging Uh, a little deeper real quick before. Can we talk about that whole feeding in the basement thing. I, I would like to talk about it in terms of theme. 
so like I said, these questions are kind of related because that's basically a metaphor. And so my question right. is, what do you think is the theme of the movie and what kind of metaphor, imagery or symbolism did you see that supports it? So, Jess, like we've covered for the last 45 minutes, uh, obviously, Amelia is having difficulties getting over the death of her husband. And that's really the true monster in the, the movie. And it manifests, I would assume, in hallucinations that are somehow shared with her son or maybe it's not a real monster. Maybe it's all in their brains because in the end of the movie, you know, where they have their uh, scream off and then the house crumbles and, you know, things fall from the ceiling and shatter and all that. Um, I'm sure all of that, when she opened her eyes after it was done, all of that was, you know, fine. There, there was no damage, just like the hole in the wall behind the refrigerator. It was all just, you know, hallucinations from the stress and all of that, which was just brought on by her brain finally being unable to ignore what she's been trying to put off for so long. And it's, it's all about, you know, finding closure. I think you could definitely, uh, you know, I think there's an argument to be made where you could argue that like, oh, it was all in their heads versus it, you know, it literally happened. I see it more as like a metaphor where in the you know, world of the story, it did happen. But this watch through for me, it was just so incredibly clear what the metaphor was, you know, in that the Babadook was this like suppressed like trauma and grief and just like mm -hmm. sort of her dark side. I just feel like every interaction with the Babadook just really drove that metaphor home even further. But before I uh, continue, I want to hear from uh, Mike and then Megan. Mike, what do you think? I mean, I think you guys have been we've been hitting it on the head the entire time as far as theme is, you know, the 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 Babadook is just a it's it became a supernatural manifestation of of the mother Amelia just not wanting to accept and wanting to just ignore this severely traumatic thing that happened to her. And because she's been repressing it, but she's constantly reminded of it because of her kid. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And Jess, as you were talking, I, it made me think, you know what? If you take, if you take that perspective, the kid's the one who brings the book to her for her to read to him. Right. So it's it's now it's a now it's a it's a visual trigger, I guess, to mm -hmm. bringing that up to the forefront and a way that it she visualizes this thing, and it coincides with the grief that she's repressing, and trying to just keep buried and buried and buried and not deal with it to move on. Yeah, and it's like you know we we mentioned the line where uh, you know Samuel says. I know you don't love me because the Babadook won't let you, but I love you. That was a powerful scene. Oh. Yeah. All he's, saying, all he's saying to his mom is like, you can't love anyone else unless you love yourself. Yep. You know? Yeah. So. And I think that was a great, that was like, that was a real turning point for her too, because I think that after that is when she stopped running from the Babadook. I mean, she right. was still kind of avoiding it, but she was like, after that, she was getting herself to the place where she really could confront it. Yeah. And then she screamed at it and it screamed back and then she screamed back and then it screamed back and she screamed back and it screamed back and she screamed back. And, screamed back and, <laughs> I and she me. hurt its feelings <laughs> yeah. and it ran away into the basement to cry about it. Well, that's what I exactly. want to talk about. I keep coming back to that scene where mm -hmm. it does confront her and it's at its strongest point. You see like the wings like come out of the shadows. Mm -hmm 
windows and it like splits the wall apart, it seems like, and it's confronting her. And that's when she basically says, I don't remember the exact words, but basically she's like, fuck you. You're, an, you're an intruder in my she's house. Like, yeah, you are trespassing in my house. If you touch my son again, I'll fucking kill you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And, and or like something after along that, those lines. Like what happens is they kind of face off in that moment and then it kind of withdraws and it withers and plops to the ground. And it's like they're sort of like groaning and like groaning weakly. Yeah. And if you think about like I was I was kind of trying to think about it metaphorically, like after I watched the movie and it's like in that moment, basically what that represents is she has finally faced all of this shit that she has been repressing. Uh And. You know, she has she has mastered it. You know, it's this part of herself that she has finally dealt with. She has finally confronted it. She has finally, you know, put her foot down and said, no, this is not what I want to be. You know, you're not going to control my life and my relationship with my son anymore. Uh, GTFO. Um, and of course, it's it, it basically retreats after that. It does the thing from scampers I, off. Into I think the of basement. like from Evil Dead, you know, where the camera <laughs> like goes through the woods, but it like comes down the stairs and like it is zoom. a cool Evil Dead POV shot. Yeah. yeah, and like slam back into the the basement, and then of course at the very end, you know, he's picking those worms, and you're kind of like, well, that's weird, and she takes it down and like feeds <laughs> it, and for a moment, it almost overwhelms her again, you know. Remember that moment she like puts it down and then it like like Lurches knocks up. her off her feet and she's like right. you know and then she spins. stands back up and says she's like shh it's okay shh. yeah and, and that is down. that it, to me the metaphor was so clear of like that's her still you know dealing with the grief but from from a position of power in a healthy of power way. yeah in a healthy way but like you know. I've lost people in my life. I've I've experienced, you know, some heavy grief in my life. And like sometimes that's what happens. It almost overwhelms you for a minute until you can kind of like, you know, get it under control again. And I felt like that's exactly what was happening. And, you know, and then she comes back up and her son asks, like, how was it today? And she goes, it's not too bad today. So she's kind of hiding the the struggle from him, but at the same time, either that or it was a quiet day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <Right>? yeah. <laughs> Those wacky Australians. It's like, oh, it didn't throw me up against the wall this time, so all good. Right. Yeah. So, what do you think, Megan, about this? What do you think is the theme? Am I on to something, or what do you think? Yeah, I I think, and honestly, I think Robbie said it really early on in the film. It's okay to not be okay. Yeah, um, mm. and that is something that Amelia has to learn because she spends so much time and energy trying to hide her family's issues from from the world from like ed- judgy teachers and administrators from her her very judgmental coworkers from her judgmental sister she spends ex- in a judgmental police she spends <laughs> so much time and energy expending trying to pretend like everything's okay mm-hmm. um and then, you know, when she finally comes to terms with her grief and with her trauma, she stops caring. Mm-hmm. Like um, one of the great really like fuck yeah moments of the movie is when they're sitting down talking with the counselor. When she strangles yes. the kid? Yes. No, no. When, she, <laughs> when 
she's sitting down talking to the counselors and she doesn't have to hush her son anymore. Yeah. And he right. he continues to say things that are, you know, kind of uncomfortable, but and she just them rolls with it. Yeah, yeah. She's just like, yeah, I don't give a crap about being, you know, I don't care, give a crap about these niceties anymore. Yeah. And I like what she says. It's like they're sitting there holding their little saucers and teacups and the kid, I can't remember exactly what he says, but it's one of those things. And they're like, oh, and she just leans forward. And she's like, let me take those for you, which is basically her saying, time for you to go. <laughs> it was a well, totally like different dynamic between her and these people who previously she feared were just going to take her kid away. But now they're seeing that they're very lovey-dovey on the couch together and she's very much in control. And it's yeah. a totally different dynamic. Oh, I, I think what it was is it was his birthday. She's finally able to celebrate uh, the son's birthday on the day. So they're asking yeah. the kid about it. Exactly. And that's when what he says. He's like, oh, yeah, my dad died in a car accident on the way to the hospital when I was born. Yeah. <laughs> so that was cool. Yeah, which earlier in the movie, he tells a stranger that. And yeah, like, at the grocery um, store. She's flabbergasted by it. And and like I said, Amelia's trying to downplay it like it's no big deal. so awkward and uncomfortable. And, and but then yeah. here at this moment, she no longer cares about the comfort of people who are going to judge her. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's great. There's so many things like that, you know, after the, the climax when we're basically in the resolution at the end of the movie where it so many things show that she has this much more healthy like balance in her life now to the like and I think maybe even the first thing is it starts on this shot where it's like it reminds me of I think um, Blue Velvet the David Lynch movie um, where I don't know if you remember that movie or if you've seen it but I think in the beginning it's like it starts underground with all these insects and maggots and then it comes up and it's like this like pristine suburbia but in this case and it's a different intention for the shot but it starts underground like in the soil with the dead dogs yeah yeah the dead dog and the roots (laughs) but then it it comes up and she's pruning this very beautiful like rose bush or something right so with black roses yeah Yeah. so the so the dark stuff and you know stuff is still down there but it's you know she um she has created a situation where her life is more beautiful now, right? And so I thought that that was a very apt uh, uh, metaphor. You know, it kind of shows things in the natural balance of, you know, light, you know, things die so that other things can live and, and, right. and so on. And so I thought that was real interesting. So let's talk about the ending. We've already kind of talked about it. So maybe I just want to see if anybody has any further thoughts before we wrap up. So in terms of the ending of the film, how do you interpret that? Like, what do you think it means? And how do you think that supports what the monster symbolizes in the theme of the film? So this is kind of bringing together a bunch of stuff that we already talked about. So um, Megan, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, we we touched on it uh, quite a bit already where it's it's basically symbolizing her dealing with her grief in a healthy way and in a way where it doesn't overwhelm her anymore. Um and when I when I first saw this ending, I didn't get it. <laughs> right. This is, Same. This was one of those things where um I had to go back to it. It is an interesting ending it. for a horror movie. It it seems a little unusual, you know. Yeah, but like upon reflection, I really like it. Like I I like this ending especially considering the the type of allegory that overall the narrative is going for. And honestly, I don't really think I would have wanted this movie to end any other way. Like, I don't think it overtaking her and killing Samuel and then herself, like, would have been a satisfactory ending. I, I really like 
I really like this. And I like that you can't get rid of the Babadook. He's always going to be <laughs> right. there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mike, what are your thoughts? I mean, I, I Meg just kind of laid it out perfectly. I can't really add too much to it. You kind of nailed it there, Meg. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're welcome. It's that's. Yeah. I got nothing. <laughs> yeah. No, I, 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 I agree. It actually is a little bit um, creepier. You know how I mentioned my friend has a, a copy of like the Babadook book? Yeah. Um, it actually does end on a little bit more of a creepy note. Like, you know, with that notion of like, oh, you can't get rid of him. Like he may come mm. for you sort of deal. Um, so maybe maybe the movie would have been like, a little bit more like woo spooky to the audience if it had to- chosen like uh, an ending kind of like that. But um, yeah, but I I think for what it is, I think it's perfect for the movie. Honestly, yeah. yeah. Well, with the allegory of grief, it actually it makes the perfect amount of sense. Yeah, because you know I've I've been in kind of a, a grieving process in in regards to a, a personal matter and. One of the things there's a. Do you page. call it 2020? <laughs> no, no. Although, like the 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 culmination was at the beginning of the year, um, but no. So it's kind of been something that I've been dealing with, you know, in regards to one of my kids for the past couple of years now. So, and like, kind of to bring it back to like the screaming match that she had with the Babadook, you know, that's that's kind of like that final that big grief filled relief. Where like you see it sensationalized in in a lot of movies at at funerals when people you know just just un- go unhinged and they're like clawing at the coffin and stumbling around and they're a soppy mess you know using the grief as the big allegory of the entire film grief never goes away yeah you know especially for someone that's meant so much to you for a certain a certain you know, a, a, a elongated t- amount of time, that grief's never going to go away. It's going to become easier to manage over time. Right. You know, so I think, like, like, like Meg said, where it was, it, it was a really good ending from the from that perspective. That it, it's it is the perfect ending because she's finally she's dealing with it. She's dealing with it in a healthy way. And it's that's it, there is no other way that the film could have ended to match up with the theme that it was going for all along. Yeah, I, I might have to raise my rating on this movie now that we've talked about it. Well, <laughs> okay, here, spoiler alert. In talk, I've found that in talking about this movie, I like talking about it more than I liked it. I thought. <laughs> so I was actually what I, I was going to actually raise my rating also to an eight. Ooh, um, yay! Seven. So it'd be eight. Straight eights across the board, but Straight now if you're, raise, if you're gonna raise yours, I'm, I might have to make it eight point five. I mean, yeah, but no. Um, the more, like I said, the more I talk about this movie, I really get your guys' points of view, and it changes, you know, what my realization of certain parts of it were. Yeah, and um, like the way that the ending is, the whole movie. Now that I've seen it twice, and we've talked about it for an hour. 28 minutes and six seconds. Um, (laughs) It's like symbolism from the opening scene to the credits. Yeah. Oh, it is totally, you know, it's, it's like everyone has mentioned, um, you know, the Babadook is based there. The Dookie monster is, uh, uh, symbolizes her grief. And 
throughout the whole movie, she's fighting it because she doesn't want to give in to it. And then finally, at the end of the movie, she decides to stand up to it and can actually defeat it. Yeah. But again, once you let it, once you let it in, it never goes away. Just like grief and trauma, mm-hmm. it's it's just you have to deal with it. You're still sad, but you're moving forward, mm-hmm. and that's what the ending brought to me. And I think this the scene with the worms and all that is basically, it's like the Babadook manifested itself. I think in their minds throughout the movie because no one else saw it just them but in the end they kind of reverse it and actually do physical things like taking the worms and feeding it down in the basement that's a physical thing to still come to terms and deal with that grief which never goes away so she's actually maybe going down into the basement doing the worm thing and that's her way of screaming it out or you know meditating and you know, finding peace yeah. with her grief. In and the you end, make so. such a good point that it's like nonstop symbolism throughout. Like if you think about it, there's a couple scenes where it actually appears to her as her deceased husband. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. And, it's and basically it asks trying... for her son. And I didn't really understand yeah. that. Well, it was, you know, it wanted uh, to consume her son in a sense, you know, the, the grief, if you want to look at it that way. And then well, actually, now you just said that it just popped in my mind. That's exactly what her grief was doing. Yes. It was consuming her son because her son's the way he is, not because of him, but because of her. So the grief actually was consuming yeah. the son. And there was this yeah. strange shot. This movie's great. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah. We turned him. I just don't want to watch it again. <laughs> There's this one shot that I couldn't get out of my head because I was trying to figure out what it meant, uh, which was right after she confronted the thing upstairs and it was like after it was defeated though or after it had kind of collapsed to the floor there's that shot I don't know if you remember it where it was like bright hard light on her face and she's just like staring right with like these wide eyes and like and it's screaming at her but it made it, it like it finally hit me at some point is like that is the moment when she's finally like unflinchingly looking at the yeah. Babadook that her bright grief, light was the light her, going her, her trauma, head. like yeah. all this stuff. When she finally truly looks, you know, really looks at it, because after that is when it like flees, basically. Right. So, because originally I was like, wait, like she's looking at it like she's scared, then it runs away. But if you think about it in terms of the metaphor, I think uh, once again for like the four millionth time in the movie, it the symbolism just really works. It's really functioning on a really deep level. And uh, that's that's what I love about the movie. Well, and it's the one time that the Babadook itself, it doesn't wear a disguise. Uh, it's yeah, not hiding exactly. behind a television monitor. It is just, it's not hiding in the shadows. It is completely unobscured. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, It's yeah. exposed. It's been exposed for what it is. Exactly. Yeah, and it's a really interesting way they basically used a horror film monster to basically define a really interesting look into the psyche, mm. you know, of a damaged and hurt person. And I think it does so extremely well. So, yeah, I'm raising my rating to 8.5. So straight <laughs> eights and a half. So, yeah. So um, I don't think I, I think we've really covered it, guys. I, I don't think uh, gentlemen and lady, I, I don't <laughs> think I really have anything else to say. Um, Mike or Megan, do you have any final comments that you want to share before we hit the road no i think uh i think we did a very good dissertation <laughs> on yeah, this we, film. 
really this think- movie's great. <laughs> this I am movie's greatly great, pleased, and it's really cathartic. Uh, Super. If, if you've cathartic. ever yeah. gone gone through anything like what Amelia has gone through, it's a very mm-hmm. cathartic experience. It really yeah. is. Cath- it, it turns frightening, cathartic, touching. It just runs like such a huge uh, range of human emotion and, and does it so well. So let's let's wrap on that. Um, yeah. I want to all think- that all that said. Still hate the kid. <laughs> well, <laughs> you're so mean, Jess. I know. <laughs> oh well, I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, please go to our uh, Apple Podcast page or your choice of podcasting platform and give us a five star review and or rating. That really does help out the show. I do want to um, just ask uh, first, Mike, and then Megan, real quick. Where can people find you online and and see what you're doing, Mike? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Boston HBR Horror. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram at Boston Horror. Just go to the Twitter. You're gonna get some political stuff in there, but mostly it's a lot of uh, uh, a lot of retweets of other podcasters and whatnot. Um, and then you can find the show at our Libsyn RSS feed, which is bostonhorror.libsyn.com backslash RSS. Uh, I give you the website, but our website is in woeful need of an overhaul. So I'm just trying to give people the, the feed. Great. I don't think we got into it earlier. What exactly is Boston Harbor Horror? So Boston Harbor Horror is a horror audio drama that centers around um, the Coast Guard because I'm a 20-year Coast Guard veteran, and they say, write what you know. So I wrote right. what I knew. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. And basically, season one starts out with, uh, you know, a coastie from a uh, small boat station, a search and rescue station in, uh, just outside of Boston, Mass., uh, goes out in a rescue and finds this weird little artifact. So in the course of trying to learn more about this artifact, uh, he starts learning that there's a lot of other uh, things going on, you know, both above and below the waters around Quiet City, Boston. Uh, that's season one. And then season two... Uh, I mean, spoiler alert-ish, yeah, Coast Guard Investigative Services agent uh, investigates a mass shooting that occurs at a small boat, st- a search and rescue station in southern Rhode Island and also finds that there's more to be seen. What I was aiming for and what I've been complimented on on it is is it's, it's, it's X-Files meets Lovecraft featuring the Coast Guard instead of the FBI. Nice. So. That's great. I, that I do love it. So dope. <laughs> that sounds so dope. I'm going to finish the White Vault and then I'm going to listen to that immediately. Awesome. Well, thank you. Great. Well, Megan, can you uh, tell our listeners where they can find you online and what you're up to? You guys can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Menguin. That's T H E M E N G U I N. I have a YouTube channel called Silver Screams, where me and my co-host talk about horror things, and I have a Lost retrospective podcast called No Love Lost, where my co-host Will Link loves Lost and I don't, and we talk about it. <laughs> and finally, I'm also a member of Rooster Team Radio, where me and my co-host talk about Rooster Teeth related uh, productions, mostly the animation stuff. Uh, we just did our RTX two-parter talking about uh, this year virtual RTX coverage so uh, go and check those things out if uh, they sound like they're interesting to you you heard her folks go check it out and uh, definitely check out Boston Harbor Horror as well I can give my full-throated endorsement of that okay well uh, thanks again uh, Mike and Megan for joining us on this episode of Mecha Dragon it's been really great this has been a really fun episode and I I feel like we covered a lot of ground I feel kind of attacked I mean you guys (laughs) <laughs> kind of just came at me with all your really good 
ideas and thoughts and were able to turn me from uh, the road I was on to a more positive positive place with my One eight. of us. One yes. of us. <laughs> <laughs> Just make sure to feed your own personal uh, Dookie Monster, Dookie uh, Monster worms yes. every, every day. <laughs> and, you'll, and you'll be fine. So, all right. Well, um, that's it for this time. Please uh, make sure to join us next time where we will be covering the 1985 horror movie House, starring House. the greatest American hero. And uh, <laughs> that's going to be a wild ride. That will actually uh, wrap up our uh, Halloween month series of episodes unless we manage to squeeze in uh, another one but thanks again everybody Captain Will signing out and I'll go ahead and give you our details we here at Mecha Dragon want you guys to know to all of you who are being haunted by monstrous incarnations manifested out of your out of control emotions that you're unable to find closure with uh, we want you to know that unlike Amelia you are not alone and we want to hear from you and you can do that by hitting us up at uh, Mecha Dragon on Facebook. If you're on Twitter and Instagram, it's Mecha Dragon Show. And email at mechadragonshow at gmail.com. We want to hear about all the monsters you've had to deal with in your life and how we can talk about them and I can make silly jokes. And for all of you listening to this, you already found us, but share us with all your friends. We're on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, uh, Stitcher, Castbox, everywhere. Hit us up, give us a thumbs up, five-star rating, review us. We want to hear from you on that, too. And uh, we'll all be wonderful friends. So thanks for listening. Peace out. Take care. Our music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0, creativecommons.org, slash licenses, slash buy, slash 3.0.